as a marketer. You may need to be the lone voice in the company that has the client's point of view in mind. That is including the client in all of your weekly meetings, like the voice of the customer, right? And you're saying, how do we know that? Did the customer tell us that? Are we creating this solution because the customer has this problem? And again, it sounds fairly elementary, but if you work in a large company, there's a lot of lip service paid to your client's needs. There's not nearly enough roll up your sleeves and leave the meetings and go out and talk and listen to the customers. And this seems like a no-brainer. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Scott Miller. Scott's the Senior Advisor for Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey. He's the host of a popular podcast called On Leadership, and he's the author of several books, including one we're going to talk about today titled From Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Now, Scott's book is framed as a series of 30 challenges to help you evolve from marketing mess to brand success. And in our conversation, Scott and I dig into a number of these challenges, starting with why you need to be obsessively focused on the customer, which is a challenge for many sellers because their sales processes typically are seller-focused. So we dive into that. Scott also shares why marketing should be the least siloed organization in your company, which is currently in line with thinking about how to structure revenue and go-to-market teams, We also dig into why Scott believes that marketing should become the leader of business development and why marketing needs to be humble enough to recognize the role they must play in service of sales. So lots of great insights here. So all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Scott, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Scott, welcome back to the show. Hey, Andy. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate the spotlight, too. Oh, well, it's nice to have you back. Um, you're very prolific. I mean, we're sitting here talking, we're going to talk about <laughs> a new book of yours called Marketing Mess to Brand Success. And yet, in the, pre, <laughs> in the pre-show warm-up, you were saying that you've got yet another book coming out. It is a true statement. I, uh, I left a 25-year executive career as the CMO of a public company. Uh, I still consult for the Franklin Covey Company, but I decided right. to write books and speak. And so I have two, I have two separate ten-volume book deals with two separate publishers. So now I'm, I'm writing about all the experiences I've had and all the guests on the podcast that I host, and um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> all right. So you have, you're committed to write twenty books, is what you're saying? I'm committed to write. Well, it gets crazier. So I'm committed to write twenty <laughs> books. I'm writing um, ten books as you know, in the Mess to Success series, right? In fact, right. the third book, Job Mess to Career Success, comes out in 2022. And then I'm writing mm-hmm. 10 books in the Master Mentor series. This is volume one. Volume two comes out next year. And so that's 20 books. And then I have a separate deal with a publisher. You're going to laugh. To write about 140 books. These are career books. They're each about 20,000 words. It's called... Um, you know, basically, how to become a chemical engineer, how to become a patent attorney, how to become, you know, a wind turbine technician. So I'm writing 140 books, each with a different co-author, someone who is an expert in that industry. And these are now going to be the Ultimate Career Guide series. We'll publish about 18 a year, starting in 2022. And this is Holy basically cow. to just, you know, help people understand 
you know, what does it mean to become a chief marketing officer? And is that the right path for you? And what happens when you burn out and how do you pivot? And, and so I'm excited about that. We have 140 different authors, about 18 <laughs> books a year. And so that's going to be an exciting yeah. project. Yeah. So you've got, you're contracted for 180 books. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I am. I'm thinking about, okay, how many more can I write before I, I'm done? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking single digits. Uh, I'm not thinking big enough, I think. Well, I don't know about that. Maybe I'm thinking too big. But I'm well on my way, and I have some publishers that believe in me. And, I, and again, you know, I left a 60-hour-a-week you know, chief marketing officer role. Sure. And so now I've got those 60 hours plus you know, my 40 hours of entrepreneurialism. So i got at least 100 hours a week. Right. <laughs> oh, did I mention I have three sons? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you have three sons. You, yeah, you got games to go to and all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have to reevaluate my well, reevaluate my life. Don't we're done. don't, don't and, use me as a model for anything. <laughs> well, I probably could do more. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, or just, or just, how about less? Better. <laughs> well, that's been my strategy so far. I'm, I'm hoping it's going to come to come to fruition. So, Good for you. Um, all right. Well, let's let's talk about marketing mess to brand success. Yeah. And so you said you're writing a basically a bookshelf of mess yeah. books. Your first yeah. one was yeah. management mess to what? I, what leadership was the title success. The right. To leadership management success. mess yeah. to leadership success. Yeah. yeah right. I, I'm sorry. I lost train of thought there for a second. Okay. It's so, a tongue twister. Yeah. So you've got a bunch of these coming up. So you said the next one was what? So the current one is a marketing mess to brand right. success. Which we're going to talk about Again, here. I'm in the midst right now of uh, finishing the manuscript for job mess to career success. Yeah. And then that'll be out in 2022. And the next one is communication mess to influence success. Yeah. That'll so be out in 2023. What's that? When's the sales one coming? So sales actually is fifth. Sales mess to client success will come out in 20, late 2023, 2024. I haven't started right. it yet, but I have the chapters outlined. But yeah, I've got, um, that'll be the fifth one. And there's five more after that. Uh, relationship mess, marital mess, parenting oh, mess. Nice. There's a lot of them coming out. Oh, Okay. But I'm still married, nice. right? And I tend to be when marital mess comes out. So, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it How depends what's marital in the book. mess to anniversary success. I don't know. I'm working on that. I haven't started that yet, but okay. My well, wife I'm Stephanie may well be a, a co-author with me on that. Yeah, that's a wise idea, as a matter of fact. So, and are they all framed similarly as yeah, marketing are. mess is as a series of challenges? They are. They all of them are thirty challenges. And they go from, you know, kind of a, a um, just self-awareness around owning your mess. These are challenges that I have, that we all have. And here's how we acknowledge them, learn and teach through them to move to success. They all are, I hope, funny, pithy, anecdotal, relatable. Yes, they are. Uh, so and that's far? the plan. Yeah, that's the formula. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the formula works You <laughs> for people who didn't read your first book. Uh, yeah. Pick that up. Pick up this one. It's just discussed that. It's very uh, conversational, very anecdotal. Uh, pithy, you. as you said, easy to read. So let's dive into some of the challenges. So yeah. the first challenge I like, um, it's the customer stupid. And yeah. again, this is, this is talking from the perspective of, as you wrote, you're a CMO of a publicly traded company. Um, tell us why this one was the top one. 
Yeah. So and for those who buy the books, you know, you can go to the website. I also, I create companion card decks for all my books and use them for keynote speeches. So if you see me holding the cards, you'll know what these are. It's like a mini book, right? Uh, it's the customer Which very stupid. Cool, by the way, thank you, thank you. I, 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 I called my publisher after after I got yours and said, "Hey, we got to do something like this." You know what I like about it, Andy, is I don't use PowerPoint, so I speak for a living, right? On on, on big stages, right. and I don't like to, you know, crush my audience with PowerPoint. So I give out a card deck to everybody, so they actually have the PowerPoint. They also get to take it home, and that's a good thing too. The first challenge is it's the customer stupid. This really was, you know, based on this natural gravitational pull all of us have to think about our own problems, our own EBITDA, our own value proposition, our own revenue goals. And I think in most organizations, small, medium, large, global, we need to make sure that we resist that gravitational pull to be thinking about ourselves and thinking about our clients. I mean, this is a duh, right? But I based it on the whole 1992 U.S. presidential campaign with uh, then-Governor Bill Clinton and President George H.W. Bush, where the war room that James Carville and Paul Begala created in Arkansas said, you know, it's the economy stupid, right? That was the only thing they felt they could beat this incumbent president upon that had just had a 92% approval rating coming out of the first Gulf War. That's not going so well 20 years later, but you get the point. It was this idea of it's the customer stupid based on it's the economy stupid. And so the chapter, Andy, is just really about as a marketer, you may need to be the lone voice in the company that has the client's point of view in mind. That is including the client in all of your weekly meetings, like the voice of the customer, right? And you're saying, how do we know that? Did the customer tell us that? Are we creating this solution because a customer has this problem? And again, it sounds fairly elementary, but if you work in a large company, there's a lot of lip service paid to your client's needs. There's not nearly enough roll up your sleeves and leave the meetings and go out and talk and listen to the customers. And this seems like a no-brainer. But uh, everyone I talk to says, this is a challenge everywhere. Rarely do we spend enough time understanding the exact circumstance our clients are in. And are we solving that circumstance for them versus our passion projects, versus our egos, the things we launch that we think they need? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I... Reduce sales and B two B sales down to a simple phrase, which is you know your job is in sales is to listen to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer and then help them get that. And yeah, I was thinking about that as reading through this chapter is like, yeah, none of people understand what that most important thing is. And and you know as you do true to form in your book, you talk about yeah you, know, you, you yourself in your own career spend a lot of time at one stage talking about the customer a lot, but not enough time talking, actually talking to the customers. Or listening from the customer, right? Right. Selling to the customer. Here's, you know, what we know you need. Of course, you know, Steve Jobs quote, our customers don't know what they want. We create it for them. I I bastardize that, but that's Yeah, they don't know what they want until we show it to them, right. That's right. And he gets gets the, you know, the latitude to say that because of who he is, or at least who he was. But for the rest of us who aren't necessarily Steve Jobs or with Apple, this first challenge really is around, have you become so distracted with your internal focus, all of your company needs, the hairball? One of my favorite Mm -hmm. books is Gordon McKenzie wrote a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. It's basically (laughs) a story, right, of how Hallmark greeting cards developed shoebox greeting cards 
and how to orbit that corporate culture without getting sucked in. And so I highly recommend your listeners and viewers buy the book also, Orbiting the Giant Hairball. It's an excellent book on corporate politics. So for the CMO, what, what's your recommendation in terms of what percentage of their time should be engaged talking with and listening to customers directly? You know, it's situational, right? Because every company has a different culture sure. and different set of politics. There are, there are, you know, do not miss meetings that you cannot miss, right? And there's other meetings where you need to be represented not by someone else, but by yourself because of the politics or such. So, you know, I think I answered the question differently. Here's what I would say. As opposed to less of percent, I would ask you if you could name your top 10 customers, perhaps only have 10 customers, can you tell yourself... What is their circumstance? What circumstance are they in? What is their job to be done? What problem are they hiring you to solve? It goes back to this adage from Bob Mesta and Clayton Christensen, who together popularized mm -hmm. you know, the job to be done theory. Right. You know, right. You're, you're, you know, you're not hiring a six inch drill, you're hiring a six inch hole. Right. Right, you're not really hiring a six inch hole, you're hanging your television. You're hanging your, you know, your pictures. So kind of like peel the onion and really understand what is it our customer is hiring us to do? So maybe less percent more, can you pass the test of, do you know right. the exact circumstance your client is in? And if you don't, then you need to up the percent from whatever it is. Great way of looking at it. So Probably 50 plus percent. Because you know, Andy, no one in finance is talking to the customer. Well, they are to collect their bills that are overdue. And no one in operations is talking to the customer. Well, they are to solve customer service problems, but it's, it's marketing's job to listen to the customer, to make sure that you also balance what sales is saying. Because sales may also have a, you know, a pejorative on what they think the customer <laughs> wants or such. So it's marketing's job, in my opinion, to yeah. as much be the voice of your company as they are the voice of the client. Yeah, and to not... <sighs> Not make assumptions about what it is. I, I agree. Right. I mean, I think that that's that right. you know, every time I look at at a company that's having a hard time really messaging what they do, the value of what they do, and the impact of what they do for the buyer, is yeah, I think that they really don't understand that buyer's circumstance, and that's why they're struggling. Well, but they know that they do. That's the problem, right? Is there's a sense of of arrogance that oh no, we know what's best for you. We, well, we, that's we, true. But right, we've talked but to you. Not right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the assumption. And I write about this in the book and many chapters, you know, you got to speak two languages. You got to speak your company language, which is rich with acronyms and, and all kinds of things. And you've got to speak your client's language because what you might be calling leadership, they're calling engagement. What they're calling, you know, their money-making model, they really mean their expansion franchisee network, right? So mm -hmm. you got to make sure that you're talking the same language and you're using not just their words, but I words. I write a whole chapter about how Franklin Covey, we have this massive vocabulary, and I hired a new person, and she said, what is that? No one calls it that. What? And, what? and she just like called us out. Like, that's like church talk. No one calls right. your job your stewardship. She's like, am I going to be assigned to stewardship? Do I have to go to church with you? And for me, <laughs> after 25 years, it became like normal to call your job. Well, my stewardship is... She's like, who says that? So right. I think it's really important to make sure you've got customers and the, give them the platform where they can comfortably use their language 
and they don't have to translate for you back and forth. That you say, no, clients are calling it this, and this is their problem, and that's what we need to solve. We don't have a right to exist. And I love that idea. You earn the right to exist by seriously understanding your clients' problems and solving them. Yeah. And that, and I see this, not to beat this point, but yeah, I always see in company after company, I work with this, this huge gap between this assumption or what I call knowing and true understanding. And yeah, you fall into that gap between there and that's, that's hugely problematic. Andy, can um, I share a thought on that? Yeah. I know I'm probably I'm hijacking your questions. No, go ahead. One of, the most, one of the most profound things that I learned in the podcast that I host was I interviewed a woman named Karen Dillon. She's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. Okay. And she wrote a whole variety of books, very dear, insanely talented woman. And she co-wrote How Will You Measure Your Life? This is a book that she wrote with Clayton Christensen, the late MIT mm-hmm. or, um, Harvard professor who passed about two years ago. Right. Right. And in this book, they quote some research from a fellow Harvard Business School professor that said, 93% of all organizations that are successful financially do so with an emergent strategy not the deliberate strategy they set out with. Mm-hmm. 93% of companies that become successful had to change their mind. They had to check their ego. They had to listen right. to the customer. Only 7% right. of the time did they actually achieve success with their original idea. And to me, that should resonate with every CMO, every, anybody listening to this podcast, whether you're a director of sales or you're a founder or a co-founder or you're the CEO, 7% of the time, what you started with is what you should end with. And 93% of the time, you probably have to change your strategy based on feedback from others, including your clients. So you might ask, what percent of the time should you listen to clients? I don't know, maybe 93% of the time. <laughs> so says the maybe research. the right answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to jump onto it a couple more challenges. Please. So, um, yeah, like, <laughs> the first two in particular, I really like, So marketing is not just a division. That's your second challenge. Challenge number two, marketing is not just a division. So you say marketing should be the least siloed group in your organization. So tell us why. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got an opinion on marketing, right? No one's got an opinion on finance and what their quarterly close process is, right? No one's got an opinion on what server you buy for IT or, you know, everyone's got an opinion on marketing. Um, But you have to understand also that marketing shouldn't just be a division of 13 people or eight people or four people. Everyone that works for you is your brand ambassador. Their behavior, their voicemail, their dress code, how Mm -hmm. they develop proposals, their email signature, their manicure, if they're in front of clients, right? I mean, their punctuality, everything. I mean, honestly, everything. And so everyone is an ambassador for your brand and you need to give them the education, the tools, and you need to model the standard for them. Can I, let me show you a great example. Well, that's what I was going to ask about that. Yeah. On the podcast that I host, I interviewed a man named Colin Cowie, C-O-W-I-E. He's the most famous party planner in the world, right? You know, multi-million dollar party parties. And he's Mm -hmm. like, he's like the Martha Stewart of parties, right? And, um, This is a man that's at the top of his game, right? I mean, when the Sultan of Brunei has a million, not a million, a hundred million dollar wedding, Colin Cowie, you know, flies in 40 jumbo jets with camels on them, right? This is how it goes. (laughs) And he also, you know, hosts smaller parties, but he's so adept at understanding the brand of his company and marketing that when your son and his fiance are considering hiring Colin Cowie for their $50,000 wedding, right? Which he still does. 
His team researches their photographs on the web and they know everything about them. And when your son and his partner, wife or whoever, fiance, are walking down the street, the staff approaches them about 150 feet away from their front door of the office and calls them by name. Mm -hmm. Eric, Tina, welcome to Colin Cowie parties. Come on in. And they, they, they know them by name. They know them by face. And when they come right. upstairs, they have, you know, macaroons with their label, with their initials on them. And they show them, this is how we will treat your guests should you hire us. This is the elegance of the food. Every employee in the building knows these customers' names. So if they come over to, like, offer a pad, they say, Eric, do you need a pen also, right? This is how they treat people. Everyone right. is in marketing. So I think if you have marketing standards and protocols, whether it be email templates, proposals, websites, email signatures, social media postings, you have to create a standard and you have to educate everybody on what that looks like. They have to know what it means to be a brand ambassador for our company. Perhaps they wear your logo. Perhaps they don't post pictures of them in uncompromising situations on the weekend because now they are a brand ambassador. I know up right. until recently, I knew large companies that a condition of employment was that you could not have a social media account. It was a condition of employment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I know. But it's interesting, too, to the, maybe not a counterpoint, but just is yeah. how much can you control of that, though, right? Is, is I mean, there's some companies in the Valley that have uh, built strong, seemingly strong brands, startups, raising money at huge valuations, uh, largely on the back of their employees being brand ambassadors out in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, but not with complete under their thumb control, but they yeah. trust, they, de they, de they develop a trust, I guess, of that. Yeah. yeah. So how do you do that culturally? How do you develop that trust within your people to act as the brand ambassador the way you need them to? I love what you said because I want to, I want to just clarify if my if my uh, my my directive my diatribe sounded like I was trying to control, I less meant that. I really meant clarify, right? Is to be clear because right. absent facts, people make stuff up, right? If you don't give right. me an email signature format, I'll create one. If you don't right. give me a template or proposal on how I propose it, I'll make one up. And before you know it, you'll have forty email signatures, and that's not building a brand. Last time I checked, you can't get scrambled eggs at Pizza Hut, and nor should you. Last time I checked, you can't get pizza at Subway. Maybe you can, but you get the point, right? Is I think yeah, it's really important right. to set down, these are the standards and these cannot be violated. Now you've got latitude on this and that and the other. Some of the best ideas, some of McDonald's best products were created by a sure. franchisee out in so-and-so, right? So right, like you want to be thoughtful not to shut stuff down because as soon as you shut it down, it now goes silent and you don't see about it till it's too late. So there's this nice, delicate balance that I think of setting standards to say, on these 14 things, there's no deviation. This is what mm -hmm. we do. And then on the rest of the things, you know, you know, use your judgment. We trust you. You trust us. If you find something that works, share it, surface it. Maybe it's good right. for all. But I right. do think there's a delicate balance of, like you said, allowing people to bring their voice and their personality and their innovation to your brand, not on your logo, not in your tagline, not in your colors. Not on the things right. that create a brand through consistency. So I think it's right. a, it's a nice balance of both, right? Yeah. No, and I think it's a it's I think it's a tough balance. Companies tough for companies to achieve that balance. I guess is is because there's you know there's this fear that operates in you know 
not oftentimes the top levels of this can't bring themselves to trust people. And I think part of it is to the point that you, you laid out though, is that they haven't spelled out the standards and in the absence of that information, yeah, they're nervous that people are going to do something that they don't approve of. I think there's lots of brands that get it right. Look at Marriott. Marriott has very strict standards on what their brand is, right? Mm -hmm. So does Disney. So does Louis Vuitton or Gucci. You walk into any well, Louis Vuitton store and everybody is, you know, they're, they're following a standard, right? I mean, it's yeah. very clear. Uh, and then there, I think there are startup brands where, you know, perhaps a little more guerrilla, you know, marketing is going to be helpful. But you rarely see these big iconic, iconic brands where there's a lot there's not much brand deviation. That doesn't mean there's not individuality, right? I am, when I go into right. an Apple store, everybody's wearing one of five t-shirts. They're wearing different pants and different tennis shoes, but they have a protocol and they treat me generally the same. They have a service standard. Mm -hmm. um, some are wearing earrings, some have piercings, some have tattoos, some have mohawks, you know, all kinds of things, but, yeah. but that's part of their brand, right? Their brand is to look like right. their customer. I don't know that Gucci's brand is to always look like their customer because their customer is, you know. Not me. Well, <laughs> Chanel's customer, perhaps, is older, right? right? And you get the point. Is I do think there's a vast situational application, and then there's also a lot that should not be changed. It's a balance of both. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I harken back to, I grew up in Wisconsin, the heyday of the Green Bay Packers and Vince Lombardi, one of my childhood idols. And, uh, you know, people he'd get criticized for maybe being too structured on his offense, but he said, well, first of all, it, it worked, right? They won these championships. He said, the way it works is, you know, we give freedom within structure. Yeah. And I think it's a, a great way of expressing it. A Andy, as a CMO, I was often known for being very strict on certain things, but I was, I would declare my intent, right? These mm -hmm. 15 things are not open to interpretation and here's why. We have a global right. brand. We're a public company. We have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, individual and institutional investors. We have offices in 150 countries that have different, you know, religions. So there's localization. There's adaptation for cultural differences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. But I don't think that, you know, what we do in New Jersey is that much different than what we do in New York. Now, maybe it's different in Alabama. We can talk about that. But I was very clear on the why behind the what. So people yep. understood why is Scott being so draconian on these things? And then I would say, hey, you know what? If you want to post on social media, keep it clean, keep it, you know, keep it relevant. Please don't talk about these things, but you carte blanche on these. I think by and large, when people feel they know what the boundaries are and they have some level of latitude, they're going to rise to the occasion. And you know what? Occasionally they're going to copy their you know what on the copy machine and post it on the internet, and you got to deal with it. It happens. Yeah, it happens. But you're right. You, 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 you create the standards, but then you give people agency and autonomy within the standards to, you do. You know, as you said, give you them some do. freedom. All right. Another challenge I want to get into, challenge number four, become the leader of business development. I, this one uh, I'm very interested in because, um, you know, I'm curious what your definition is of business development in this, yeah. this context. But, but I've seen this work extremely well from a marketing standpoint. So, when you're saying become the leader of business development, talking to a CMO, what, what are you saying exactly? You know, when, when our CEO offered me the job of vice president of marketing, this was the role that I had before the CMO. I became the company's first and only CMO. I was actually in Trinidad. My phone rang at a company meeting and he offered me the role of vice president of marketing. And I said, no, thank you. 
I said, because I saw what happened to the previous six vice presidents of marketing. I don't want to be the seventh. I said, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'll be the vice president of business development. And I want a quota. I want a revenue quota. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to be dispensed with when sales decides that marketing campaign didn't work. I've worked here too long and too hard not to see that pattern. Right. And here's why. Is I think too many marketers hide behind impressions, likes, right. Attribution views, leads, right. brand yep. equity. You cannot deposit brand equity into the bank nope. and fund payroll off of it. Now, that is not me diminishing the value of brand equity, right? I mean, I helped to build one of the most biggest iconic brands in the world, the seven habits of highly effective people mm-hmm. and, you know, a half billion dollar company. And I wanted to be the leader of business development. I wanted the entire sales company to know I am in your boat and I am rowing with you. I am not the business prevention unit. There's no finger pointing. There'll be no blaming. What do you need? Why do you need it? Here's my point of view. Here's what I think you could use. That's nice to have. Is that a must to have? And so I really closely aligned myself with the executive vice president of sales. I was the executive vice president of business development, also eventually the CMO. And together Mm -hmm. we worked in unison. We sometimes didn't agree in private, but we always agreed in public because I Mm -hmm. saw myself in service to sales. And I'll tell you, sometimes members of my team didn't like that because they thought that I was undervaluing marketing. I said, no, 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 no. They fund our paychecks. I was in sales for 20 years at Franklin Covey, and then I moved over to marketing. And so for me, it took a level of humility that wasn't natural for me to recognize that my job is to serve sales. Yes, there were, yes, there were jobs I had for the corporate brand beyond sales, right? And that was this kind of a separate job as sort of chief brand officer. Mm-hmm. Right. But I just really think that every marketer should question themselves, why am I in marketing and not in sales? Am I hiding from a revenue quota? Do I not want to be held accountable? Do I want to stay with, you know, fonts and colors and campaigns and promotions and launches where there's no like accountability like you find over in sales? And I don't mean to take marketing to task, but I think it's those marketers that right now are saying amen to what I am saying that are the most relevant to the CEO. Because here was the test. I'd often be in a meeting with our CEO And you'd have the EVB of sales sitting here and me over here. And he would often Mm -hmm. be looking at me, talking to me about the third quarter revenue goal because he would confuse me with the EVP of sales. And that was a compliment because he saw me as the CMO owning the number, whatever the number was, just as much as my sales partner. Even though I would, we were peers, same comp, same stock mm-hmm. options, same title. Mm-hmm. I deferred to him because that was the role of marketing. The CEO did not need the classic fight between sales and marketing going on. And so that's why I named it. I, you know, I owned marketing, but I wanted to sure. be accountable for business development, right? Keeping, I, I mean, the, the story I write in the book is the famous, you know, Utah jazz scenario of Stockton to Malone, right? Is right. the mailman. You know, his job was to dunk it in, and John Stockton's job was to get the ball up there so he could. I saw myself as John Stockton, so sales could be Malone. And so when you called yourself VP of business or EVP of business development, how, how did that sort of filter down to your team then in terms of how they viewed yeah. what their yes. job was? I love that you asked that question. There were 35 of us. So I would be in a meeting with the CEO, 
and we would be discussing the budget for the launch of XYZ product, right? right? And I'd have all my measures and all of our, you know, critical success factors and all that. And I would say to him before I left, so tell me how much money I'm responsible for delivering by midnight at the end of the second quarter. And he would say, $6.8 million. I would shake his hand. Now, that was really the sales quota for the sales EVP. Right. But I would walk back to the team and say, we have to deliver $6.8 million. So everything we do has to deliver that. And if we don't do it, we fail, not marketing. And so we would get very clear on, is that direct mail? Is it SEO? Is it a new website? Is it face-to-face meetings? Is it a kit for client partners or salespeople to actually demonstrate to clients? Is it buying better data? Is it a better offer? You know, what is that? And so we were fiercely focused on a scoreboard. We, we knew the number as well as sales did. We would meet daily. Here's where we are in a scoreboard. So our team knew every day, we only have 12 days left and we're short a million and a half dollars. What are we gonna do? So- uh, And you'd we, have that we, conversation with sales, I take it, at that point too then. Every day. Yeah. Every day, the EVP of sales and I would either pass each other or kibitz or go for a walk or a coffee and talk about where we were and how he was feeling and how I was feeling and should I do this and should I do that? And sometimes my job was not to cook up new ideas. Sometimes my job was to say, you know, his name was Sean. Sean, I think we should stay on this campaign for four more days. I feel it building, let's stay on this. I've got plan B and plan C. We've got three weeks of time to implement that. But um, I saw my job as making sure he always crossed the finish line. And so did marketing and all of our meetings. And I'll tell you, I'm proud of that culture. I think in some ways, some of the marketing team got tired of that, but I didn't care because our job as a public company was to meet our commitments to Mm -hmm. our clients and to our investors, period. Egos aside. Well, and you're seeing a, a move, especially in the tech world these days, to what they call revenue operations, which is you know to break down the silos, have you know a unified person in charge of revenue, which encompasses sales, marketing, customer success, and so yeah. on. Um, and an acknowledgement that yeah, too many companies are still struggling with this, as you said, sort of competition between the two. Yeah, I generally think, and I write that in most every situation, I think marketing should report to sales. Not in every situation, there are outliers. There are parts of marketing that don't always relate to sales, right? In terms of building a brand and reputation management and perhaps public relations. But I think every CEO's worst nightmare is the classic finger pointing and fighting between sales and marketing. And you don't deserve to have that job if you aren't building trust with sales. That is your job. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah, there's not much to say. <laughs> not much more to say about than that. All right. Uh, challenge 15 was something really different. I really liked is friend your competition. Um, so tell us genesis genesis for this. You had a story about uh, yeah. a woman who worked at a company That's great. yeah that was uh, local and a competitor, competitor. and yeah yeah. So tell yeah. us about that. Well, first, thank you for reading the book or at least that chapter. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, you know, this right. is taboo. This is taboo in most companies, right? Is you, you would be, you would either be like a heretic or a spy if you were caught kibitzing with the comp- competition. First of all, the world is sh- small, and increasingly, you're either going to be acquired by or partnered with or acquiring your mm-hmm. competition at some point. So, a, don't burn right. any bridges, and b, make sure you gather as much intelligence as possible. 
But I do think there is an abundance mentality that um, the more you learn from your competition, the more you can better position yourself in the industry and your products and services as well. And, you know, and there's some, you know, in finance and technology, this probably is a little bit um, riskier. So you have to, you know, you have to apply the principle accordingly. But I just generally think that understanding what your competition is going through, what are their challenges? What are their best practices? How are they forming their value prop is obviously very valuable. So I just made the decision after having a meeting with some salespeople that said one of our competitors was kicking our butt. They happen to be a company called Vital Smarts. They're the geniuses mm-hmm. behind the Crucial Conversations brand in the mm-hmm. book and the course. And they said, you know, all of Silicon Valley is buying Crucial Conversations. They won't even meet with us because they think we're old school. And so mm-hmm. I got my, my butt handed to me on a platter in a meeting in San Francisco once with our salespeople. I mean that metaphorically. Right. And, of course. And so I came back and said, damn it. I want to learn who's kicking my ass. Well, her name was Mary McChesney, the VP of marketing at Vital Smarts, 40 miles south. By the way, Vital Smarts was the company that spun off from Franklin Covey. Some of our founders went and opened that, that company. So I took her to lunch. I sent her an email and said, hey, will you meet? She was a little bit apprehensive. We sat mm-hmm. kind of guarded. It was at the, um, uh, I don't know, some pizza restaurant. And uh, we kind of declared our intent. I said, hey, my intent is not to manipulate you. My intent is not to get you to talk about anything that is proprietary. My intent is to meet you to say, hey, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you working on? What are you struggling with? And I'll share the same level of abundance. The first Mm -hmm. meeting was guarded, but it went so well, we had a second meeting and a third meeting and a 14th meeting where we never compromised our fiduciary responsibility to our employers ever once. But eventually she would call me and say, Scott, um, you know, we're thinking about this kind of email. What do you, how do you address this in your emails? And I would call her up and say, we're thinking of having a conference in Silicon Valley. You know, where should I hold it? Where, where do these people want to come, right? And she would tell mm-hmm. me. And then, you know, we got, they got to be bigger issues. I was thinking of buying a, a um, marketing automation system. And I was like, you know, days from signing with X. And she's right. like, oh, no, hell to the no. Been there. Here's what you should <laughs> right. do. And I'll tell you, you know, she swayed a million dollar contract and she was right. And I listened to her. And instead of my, instead of buying the wrong marketing automation system, which all of us do the first time, I bought the right one because of the advice. So the big idea is to calibrate the principle to your situation. And are there people in your industry that are your competitors that you could build a mutually beneficial relationship of trust with? Don't do it in secret. Make sure your leader knows. Make sure your mm-hmm. CEO or CMO knows and say, hey, I'm a big boy. I know not what to share. I'm kind of just trying to build some rapport. I'd love to know how they do this or do that. My CEO never questioned me once. He was probably apprehensive, like, but I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I have a legal duty not to compromise our company, but I do think the principle is based on having an abundance mentality versus yep. a scarcity mentality. You can implement this challenge without breaking any laws, any rules, and benefiting everybody better. Your clients will benefit when they realize what your competition brings to the table. By the way, it might be competition in a different industry. What does that mean? You might learn things, if you're in high tech, you might learn Mm -hmm. things from pharma that can really help you better serve your clients, right? So that's the idea. Yeah, yeah, and part of the reason this resonated too is is, I've seen examples and heard examples where – uh, 
and I don't think this is unique to tech, but you certainly hear it among you know startups and smaller companies is is just this fear of almost acknowledging competition. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'd heard a story about it. Yeah, so I'm posting something to an internal Slack channel about a competitor hitting a certain milestone in revenue and thinking that this is pretty exciting, right? I mean, yeah. look at the potential in this market we're in, right? Right, right. Is they hit this. But this guy gets a message from the number two person in the company saying, well, take that down. Wow. Why do wow. we want to talk about that? that? I won't be working and, there. Uh, yeah, and it's like, but it's crazy, right? It's like, why the more business is being done with your competitors proves how big the market opportunity is, right? And the bigger they Absolutely. are, the more they're helping to educate the market about your products. What I'm most Absolutely. proud of in this book is, by the way, we're fierce competitors. Make no mistake. We compete oh, with yeah. wallet share with this company, right? When someone buys from them, they're not buying with me. So do not think I'm a Pollyanna right. by any stretch. Right. But she wrote the second half of the chapter in the book. I invited her to tell <laughs> her share of the story, and I did not right, edit it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You had it sort of in italics right there. I did. Um, Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Well, Scott, thanks for stopping by. That was, it's a great book. I recommend people get it. The, the way you lay it out, the challenges you can, you know, thanks, go pick Eden. and choose if you want to pick and choose. Um, how, tell me how big are the cards? Are like a playing yeah, the cards deck are like cards a playing or? card deck. You know, I have them for yeah. all the books. They come in a little sleeve. I have them for every book that I write, I write a different, a little card deck. So just like, a, you know, a playing card deck and the front actually is the actual challenge and the back has some provocative oh. questions. Of course, Very you should cool. buy the book because the, the meat is in the book in terms of the stories yeah. and the examples, but the concepts right. are in the card decks. I usually use them for all of my speeches, but you can buy them on my website, scottjeffreymiller.com. But um, I appreciate the spotlight and the platform today, Andy. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back, and uh, we'll have you back again on one of your 100, let's see, we could do 167 interviews. You, know, you could be my you show. Get, I think you might get sick of You could of be these. my show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank all you, right, Andy. Scott, thanks so much. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show, and I want to thank my guest, Scott Miller, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or every listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.